When Lindsay and I bought the house that we live in right now, it was, it was nice, it was cute, but it was a mess. It had issues. It was built in 1974. It really had not been updated since 1974. I think the plan was just put more paint on everything. Just keep painting it. But you, there's some things you can't paint. You don't paint toilets, okay? You just can't. Okay, so we're like, we show up, we're like, okay, it's all right. There's work to do. But the most work that needed to be done, truthfully, was in the yard. Any yard-working warriors with me today? I mean, like, we walked in, and it was just, like, crazy, okay? And so I, I think we have a, if, several, lots of you have been to our house. It's not a huge yard. There were over 25 trees in that yard, big trees. One of the trees had almost a six-foot diameter at the bottom, and it was, like, six feet from our house. It was a huge tree, a lot of small ones. There were over 30 bushes. Some of the bushes were taller than our house. It was crazy. So when we pulled up, it was just like, oh, I think there might be a house in there. I'm not sure. Well, I'm a fix-it kind of guy. I love to get out and do the work, so I sat at it, man. Just get out there. Start, if you start out, you're just pulling weeds. I spent weekend after weekend pulling. Listen, I don't know what our forefathers thought about azalea bushes, but they were big fans. I know that. Okay, and there were a lot of azalea bushes. Too much azalea bushes? I have strong opinions about azalea bushes after this yard. Okay, and so like I'm in there, blood, sweat, and tears, muddy to my elbows and on my face because I am digging out bushes, chaining them up to my truck and yanking them out with the axe, with the big clipper things, cut down so many trees. We've actually cut down at this point 16 of those big trees, and that's a big job, whether it's Lobman did myself or pay somebody to do it. we got four left, we're almost there. It has been work. Okay, but listen, it used to be that I would pull up to my house at the end of the day and I'd sit outside in my car and I'd be like staring at my, like scowling at my yard. I'm like, what's wrong with you? Get yourself together. Like, will you grow, be like other yards, okay? Will you stop? But now, like I'll be out in the yard and my wife will be like, Chris, it's time for dinner. Stop looking at your grass. You know, it's like, it's five more minutes. I love looking at the yard. Now, you might walk in and say, well, there's a work to do. But you know what? I know the work that went into it. Has anybody experienced that? You put a lot of work into something, and it's special because it's yours, and it's producing good fruit. Uh, I, start, I start, with this, uh, start with this illustration because I want to get us in a mindset that's going to help us understand our book of the day. Uh, if you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you, you might need a minute, find the book of Micah. It's in the Old Testament, very short book. If you need a Bible to use today, we've got free ones that you can use today. They're on the shelf back here by the door. Grab one, use it for the service. You can look it up on your phone if you want to. Or if you want one to keep, go grab it, keep it. Write your name in the front cover and keep it. It's yours. We want everybody to have a good uh, version of the Bible to, to read on their own. But uh, we're in the book of Micah because we are in uh, the last week of a six-week series where we've been going through Minor Prophets. Some of the least read books in our Bible, uh, and they're actually 12. There's 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. They're called minor because they're short, not because they're not important. They're minor, they're short, and they're called prophets because in the Bible, someone who's had an encounter with God and then has like a message to share because of that encounter, they're called prophets. And so they're minor, they're prophets. There's 12 of them. We're going through six this summer, then time out for a while because it's a lot, and then we're going to go six more next summer, and then if you did it all, then you covered it all, so good job. Um, and so I talk about this thing about my yard, because that's how life is. Life, if you have anything nice in your life, somebody worked hard for it. Let that sink in. Like, even if you moved into a picture-perfect dream house, somebody worked hard to put that there. It was at some point a wild forest Someone cleared the land. 
They graded the land. They laid a foundation. They built walls. Have you ever roofed a house? I have. It ain't easy, okay? And so like a lot of work. So anything that you have in your life that's nice and enjoyable, somebody worked for it. You can't have those, you know, standing out in the yard looking at the grass moments where your wife has to call you in for dinner without the blood, sweat, and tears moments where you're covered in mud and sweating and wondering how many more azalea bushes could there possibly be. Uh, and so we start with that mentality because as we get into the book of Micah, we've covered a lot of ground over this series. We looked at the book of Hosea, Joel, Amos. We read Obadiah. I know uh, I was talking to Joe earlier, Joe Hammond, and he was, he was wanting to read Obadiah again. It was so good. <laughs> Least read book in the Bible, but we read it together. Last week, uh, Perry did a great job on the book of Jonah. And this week as we get to Micah, I love that we're landing here because it actually is going to bring in little pieces from all of those. And it's going to summarize a lot of it. And we're going to actually find ourselves in a great place to close up the series on. Um, we're going to start, uh, unlike the rest of the books where we started chapter 1, verse 1. We're actually going to start near the end. Do it out of order. Because uh, I want you to meet Micah first. I want you to understand what he's going through. And then uh, we're going to go back to the beginning and figure out why he is where he is. Chapter 7 is where we're going to start. And if you want to go ahead and flip to Micah chapter 7 and verse 1, let me set you up, okay? We're going to find Micah in a setting. He's going to use this setting as like a metaphor, so he's not really in a vineyard, but he's going to describe his life like a vineyard, and he's going in at what he calls the time of the gleaning. The time of the gleaning is an important part of Jewish culture. Uh, gleaning was not only part of their culture, it was actually part of their law, and this is how it works. The farmer plants the field, the harvesters harvest the field, but as the harvester harvest the field, they were supposed to leave some stuff behind in the field. So like if you're doing the wheat and you drop some on the ground, you just leave it there. If you get to the edges of the fields and it's just like a little close to the ditch or the road or you just want to get over there, you just leave it there. And the culture and the law said that then the poor people of the community could come into the field and they could collect all the leftovers. And it's a really cool piece of that culture because God was trying to build into them this mentality of, of generosity and hospitality and saying, listen, you've got to look out for, for the least of these. You've got to care for people. One way to do that is you don't need all this wheat. <laughs> you don't need all these grapes, all these figs or whatever it is they're farming. You just need enough for yourself and leave some for other people. We're going to find Micah in chapter 7 in the gleaning time at the vineyard. But he's not having a good day. Here we go. Micah 7, verse 1. What misery is mine? I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard, but there's no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judges accept bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. And the best of them is like a briar. The most upright, worse than a hedge. The day God visits you has, has come. The day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. My wife, Lindsay, and I have had a chance to go to some vineyards. It was close to 10 years ago. We went to some beautiful vineyards in Northern California. Have you ever been to those vineyards? You're just like, man, this is, oh, this is heaven. It's like these lush, rolling hills of vines, and you're out there. And I remember walking out amongst them and just having, like, clusters of grapes bigger than my head, and you taste them. They taste so good. This is what a vineyard should look like. Anyone who has a vineyard invests heavily in there being plenty of fruit. This is not what Micah walks in on. He walks in a desolate, barren place. During the gleaning, 
and there's not even any grapes left at all. It's a metaphor, and he, he's telling the story. He's like, you know, basically the nation of Israel is the vineyard. The people are the fruit, and there's nobody left that's righteous at all. And as he looks around, he's, he's got this very lonely feeling. He's alone. He's spent his entire life, I mean, he's a prophet, uh, and, and a modern, modern contemporary idea of like what a prophet would have been back then might be like a pastor or a preacher. Slightly different roles in society, but this is someone who devotes their life to just helping people find repentant hearts to God. And he's looking around for like any companions, like is there anybody? Is there anybody else trying to help people find God and he sees nothing? The righteous are gone. In fact, the only people that are left, the best of them, are like a briar. The best of them are like a thorny hedge. I don't know if you've ever felt alone in your faith. Maybe you have. Maybe you work at a place where you're like the only person who's trying to do good. We say every week here, we're going to shine light in dark places. And you might leave on Sundays like, yeah, I'm going to shine some light in dark places. And you show up at work and it's like, oh my goodness, I'm all alone. Nobody else has the same goals that I have. Or, or maybe you had this experience in school. And we've got a lot of students in here right now. And you're like, yeah. even the people who claim to have faith in Jesus, they're not really acting like it. I'm all alone. Maybe you're the only person in your family, like your household or like your whole family. And like you found faith in some way. Or maybe you're here today because you're, you're trying, you're seeking some faith. But you're like, I'm, it's lonely in those moments. And Micah, I wanted you to meet Micah because that's where he is. Now, he's not the only one. We're going to talk later in the book about, actually, it's earlier in the book because we started at the end, but about a remnant. In fact, there's pockets of faithful people all over Israel, and there's other prophets. I mean, we've, we've met uh, Amos. We've met Hosea. They lived at the same time as Micah. Isaiah lived at the same time as Micah. He's not alone, but he felt alone. And in this moment, he's like, how can I make a difference if I'm the only one? That's Micah. Okay, so. God is noticing this too, because he's got pretty good vision, and <laughs> he sees what's going on in the world. We're going to go all the way back to Micah chapter 1 and verse 1, and we're going to see God's response to this barren wasteland of unrighteousness. Micah 1, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria... And Jerusalem. So specifically, he's talking to these two cities. Hear you peoples, all of you. Listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. And look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and he treads on the heights of the earth. Listen to this imagery. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart like wax before a fire like water rushing down a slope. Like anytime you see someone trying to describe God in the Bible, it's like this. It's like, it's epic. How do you describe God? They're like, I, I don't know. How do you describe something's power without identifying how destructive it could be? You know, we talk about hurricanes or the ocean or the wind and like, if you go on a peaceful day, it's like, yeah, it's pretty powerful. What do you mean it's powerful? Well, uh, there used to be a house right here. <laughs> now it's not here anymore. Like that's the power of something. Side note, the beauty of God's power is his, his ability and his choice to control that power. Isn't that what makes us human? Our ability for self-control. And so that's a piece of God's presence, but uh, God is coming down off this mountain. 
melting mountains in his path, and he's not happy. Verse 5 says it like this, all of this is because of Jacob's transgression. So you remember Jacob? So Jacob is the uh, grandson of Abraham. Abraham is the person that God comes to and makes a promise, like all the world's going to be blessed through you, Abraham. So Jacob comes to be kind of the, the leader of that promise for his generation. Jacob has an encounter with God where his name is changed to Israel. So anytime you see like a prophet talking about Jacob, he's not really talking about Jacob. Jacob's been dead for a long time. He's talking about all the descendants of Jacob. He's talking about the Israelites. So let's start again at verse 5. All this, like all this melting mountain stuff, God's wrath, all of this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble. This is the voice of God. A place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. And all her idols will be broken to pieces. Judah, Samaria, Israel, they shouldn't be having idols. Follow that. But they got them. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. We've spent quite a bit of time over the last six weeks talking about um, this situation in Israel back during this period of history. If you missed it, totally fine. You're going to pick it up real quick, but I totally recommend you go check out our podcast. We also have all the sermons banked on YouTube for this series because it's a series of time where people have turned their back on God. These are God's chosen people. Over and over again, he has shown his power to them, shown his grace to them, and then they turn back on him. So at this time, they have turned their hearts towards the, uh, the gods of the, the pagan nations around them they're worshiping these idols but it's not just idol idolatry like as in no big deal it's like these are demonic forces the three or four big ones that they worshiped required some majorly immoral worship one of them required uh just immoral sex with temple prostitutes that's not how you worship god but that's how they were doing it for these demonic forces there was another one that required human sacrifice that's not no big deal that's a big deal And the worst part was they were like kind of homogenizing the faith of the pagans with the faith of Yahweh, God. And they were just doing it all the same in the same temple with the same songs. Some of the priests served multiple gods. This is really bad. Did your mom ever, uh, (laughs) when I was a kid, I knew I was in trouble. If I was playing with my brother and we were getting too rowdy and my mom says, do not make me come back there. Did your parents ever do that thing? Like, do not make me come up there, down there, wherever you are. Do not make them go there. Because if my mom told me, do not make me come back there, like, I was about to get a beating. Probably 6.8 seconds later, I'm getting a serious spanking. I'm going to be punished, right? Like, this is a big deal. Uh, God is coming down there. When we see God coming off this mountain, he's in a place of gain. I'm here to set things right. And there's about to be judgment dealt out. Um, See, when we have an image of God, many times there's kind of two images and we only choose one. As if you're a Christian, you really like to talk about God as this like really happy, friendly, graceful, loving person. And he is. Like that's his biggest attribute. The Apostle John said God is love. There are a lot of Christians and then, and then largely people who are, are still learning the character of God, like the way they see God is this vengeful, angry God. You know, Zeus on the mountain throwing lightning bolts. Like this is, 
this is the image they have of God. And a lot of times we, we balk at that. We say, no, 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 no. God doesn't get angry. Oh, he does. He describes himself as a jealous God. But his heart is not for punishment. His heart is for restoration. Any good parent that's going to discipline their child is not doing it because they just love punishing people. Why do you, why do you discipline your kids? You want better for them. You know they can do better. And you know that the world as a whole will be better if your kids would behave, right? So as God's coming down the mountain, melting mountains and <laughs> throwing the, the rubble of Samaria down in the valley and all this stuff, his motivation is restoration. And I love what Micah says in verse 8. We're still in chapter 1. God's heart is broken. Listen to this. Because of this, I weep and I wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal. I will moan like an owl. This is old-fashioned talk, okay? This is ancient talk. Um, we don't go around walking around naked and hailing like animals and we get sad. But this is the nature of what God is feeling. His heart cries out because of the brokenness of his people. And he wants to help make it right. Uh, okay, so that's where we are. Put a time out on that. If you've been following our, uh, our study, you know that like all the prophets are pointing to two big problems that the people have. Do you remember? They have a righteousness problem and they have a justice problem. And each of the prophets kind of weighs heavily on one or the other. Some of them hit them both pretty equally. But Micah actually brings up a, a third problem. Actually, I think it's kind of part of the first two. A problem that many of the other prophets that we've studied have not even talked about. And so if you've got your Bibles, flip over to chapter 2, and you might have a heading in chapter 2 that says, false prophets. Has anybody seen that? False prophets? If you've got that in your Bible, that's a good title for that section, uh, false prophets. Because there's a problem going on in Israel that the other prophets we've read haven't talked about, and it's this. There are these people. They're, they're wearing their God hat, okay? They're claiming to be the good guys. They're claiming to have a message from God. They're claiming to be prophets, but they're not. The messages that they're sharing are untrue. They didn't come from God. The things that they are teaching are not wise. And not only that, but people like Micah, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, and there were lots of others that didn't write books um, that we have today. They're at odds with these false prophets. Because here's what's happened. You got a guy like Micah. He's like, God's coming down from the mountain and he's melting it like wax and all this stuff. And he's angry about the sin of Jacob. And there's these other false prophets. And you know what they're saying? Uh, you'll see it in verse 6, but let me give you my, my paraphrase. They're going, shh, Micah, stop it. Stop it. Everything's fine. Stop telling people that God's upset. It's fine. Look at verse 6. They say, do not prophesy. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Verse 7 gives you some more. You can read it. I'm going to paraphrase this one because it's a little bit confusing if you you got to take a minute and unpack it. But basically, there was this teaching that they had that said, listen, God has unlimited patience, okay? So you can just do whatever you want to, and God's just going to be cool with it because he's got so much patience. That's how much God loves you. He's got patience. Micah's like, no. No, God, has, God is righteous and he's just. He actually has very little patience for unrighteousness and lack of justice, he wants us to do good. And so there are still these people today, by the way. You might have been hurt by a person who has claimed to be from God, shared a message that ultimately just kept them popular and rich and happy. That's what's happening here. We see the Apostle Paul talking about it still happening in the New Testament. It's nothing new. People use the mantle of religion to get everybody peaceful and 
for whatever their needs are, meet their own needs. That's what's happening here. But in verse 8, the voice of God comes back in. This is Micah talking. But this is what God tells him. He says, lately, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robes from those who passed you by without a care. Like men returning from battle. He's talking about plunder. Like you're just being dishonest. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. This is the justice problem we've been talking about. Verse 10. He says, get up. Go away. For this is not your resting place. Because it is defiled. It is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and a deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you for plenty of wine and beer. That would be just a prophet for these people. That's what's going on during Micah's time. How do we reckon all this? Okay, so I want to give us a mental thing that you can actually use pretty much anywhere in the Bible. It's got to do with zooming in and zooming out. Okay, that's our exercise. So when you come into a story like Micah's or any specific per person, you know the name maybe David. Abraham, Moses, when you zoom in, you can see what's happening in their life with their people. And all throughout the Bible, a lot of the Bible is actually could be a little bit discouraging because every time you zoom into a life, what we see clearly when we zoom in is unfaithfulness. If you know the Bible very well, that's what we see. That's one thing I love about the Bible because I really believe it's honest. <laughs> it's like, that's an honest thing. Aren't we bad at faithfulness as a whole, as humanity? We, we are whether it was our relationships to one another, especially in our faith towards God. Uh, sure, we have our good days. And as a whole, I hope that we all want to be faithful, but we struggle. And so you got this unfaithful. When you zoom in, often you'll find these moments where you're seeing unfaithful. When you zoom out, though, when you look at the big story of God, like from creation to the end of time that we see some glimpses of in some of these prophecies, what you see instead is the faithfulness of God. You zoom in, you see the unfaithfulness of man. You zoom out, you see the faithfulness of God. And so when you read the book of Malachi, I, I read it twice this week. Actually, I listened to the old British guy on my, uh, my Bible app read it to me twice because it's hard to read these kind of things, you know. I don't study a lot of, you know, ancient poetry a lot. So I wanted to hear it a couple times. And it's a roller coaster because, like, God's coming down from the mountain and he's angry. But then he's like, oh, it's good, it's bad, it's good, it's bad. Because I think what's happening is that we're zooming in and we're zooming out. And we're zooming in and we're zooming out. And so when, when, we, when we zoom out on the picture of God, what you see from beginning to end is God shows up in creation, it is good. And he mingles with mankind. And he loves them. And he walks with them. But man sins. And it messes things up. But you know what? He's still faithful. So he makes a path for them to come back to him. And you zoom in and you zoom in. It's like they messed up, they messed up, they messed up. But God provides a way. He provides a redeemer. He provides a teacher. He provides some kind of way. And you keep zooming out and you see him find Abraham and he comes with this prob promise. He's going to say, all people of the world are going to be blessed through your line, Abraham. Spoiler, Jesus comes from the line of Abraham. But if you zoom into the Abraham story, you're like, Man, these people are messed up. But if you zoom out, God never fails them. You zoom in and you zoom out and God's faithfulness is, is true. And so that's why when you get to the end of chapter 2 in Micah, we're going to zoom out and look at this big picture. Micah 2.12. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I want you to picture a mother hugging their child, you know, or a father, you know, just kind of gathering them. I will surely gather you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. That's that faithful pockets of people. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like flock in its pasture, the place where the throng, the place will throng with 
people. The sheep metaphor is good. I mean, that's, a good, that's the safe place for the sheep, right? With the shepherd in the pasture, in the pen. Chapter 3 zooms back in, and it dogs them for their unrighteousness and their, their lack of justice. We've talked about that ad nauseum. These are the same people that the other prophets were talking about. So you know about that. But in chapter 4, we're going to go HD widescreen. We're going to go super wide. And Micah's going to paint a picture of this day that is yet to come for him. That is a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. So God has promised this nation Israel to fall. That's actually the main message through most of the prophets. You guys are going to fall, and, and, and they do. The Assyrians come in, the Babylonians come in, and they never return to their status that they had before all this, to this day. Verse 2, there's a new mountain that's being built, a new, a new nation. And many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion. The word from the Lord of Jerusalem. He would judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations, far and wide. Listen to this. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. There are a couple of prophets that use this phrasing. Uh, a sword and a spear, these are tools of war. A plowshare, a pruning hook, these are farmer's tools. Like under God's kingdom, there's not going to be a need for war you're not going to need a sword. You're not going to need uh, a spear. This is the big screen picture that, God, that Mike is painting. Nation will not take up na sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. We're in verse 4 now. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All right, time out real quick. I know we've got a lot of Hamilton fans in here. So if like you right now, you know the musical Hamilton and you're singing that uh, George Washington song where he quotes this passage, stop it. We're doing a Bible study, okay? It's a real cool album. Go listen to it later. Oh, vine and fig tree. I got you again. 80% of the people in this room don't know what I'm talking about, but that 20% needed that, okay? Am I right? Yep, yep, I'm right. Okay, so now we're gonna get back to the passage. So first of all, um, Micah is painting a picture of a new nation, Okay. The old nation is going to fall. This is Israel, and history proved that did happen. But a time is coming when God is going to establish a lasting kingdom, a kingdom established in peace. This is very prophetic and, you know, in the clouds kind of stuff. Are you with me on that? It's like, whoo, what? But this, this happened hundreds of years earlier. And then when you get to Micah chapter 5, so flip over to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, you're going to hear a phrase that might sound very familiar to you. In fact, it might sound like something you'd hear at Christmas time. And you might not have known this was in the book of Micah. He says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Ephar though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, the ruler of this new kingdom, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. You heard this story? This is the hope of the book of Micah, that even though you guys have totally blown it, God's faithfulness will not fail. In fact, in one of your smallest little villages, Bethlehem, 
I'm going to send a ruler who's going to change everything. And if you're still not picking that up because maybe you don't know this history, that's where Jesus was born. The gospel writers in the New Testament apply this verse to Jesus himself. And though I do believe there was some contemporary fulfillment of this passage during Micah's time, there are a lot of those passages in these prophets that have like a double meaning. They, they worked for Micah, and then they worked even better for Jesus. And over and over and over, the prophecies about this coming Messiah, or sometimes he's called a king, or sometimes he's called a ruler or a leader, are consistently fulfilled through the person of Jesus. Micah gives this hope. And look at verse 4. This is chapter 5 still. This is a description of that, that ruler from Bethlehem. So if you know Jesus, overlay this over what you know about Jesus. He will stand as shepherd Sorry, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So Micah gives this message of hope to the people. They had no idea of knowing how big their time in history would prepare the rest of the world for the coming of God in the flesh, Jesus. This is huge. Now, if you read the whole book of Micah, which, by the way, we haven't. We've given you like a skip a rock across the top, Cliff's Note version of the book of Micah. But if you do that, you'll see that there's a lot of scenes in the book of Micah that leave him feeling like that moment in the vineyard. I'm all alone. It's hopeless. Or like my house when I first moved in. <laughs> Bushes, trees, poison ivy everywhere. And is a lot of work ahead for the nation of Israel. Primarily for the farmer, for the homeowner, for the parent who had to come down off the mountain. My life, your life, if we're honest, looks a lot like this. We're a hot mess. Uh, seriously, for me, as soon as I figure out righteousness and justice in one area of my life, I realize like there's this other area of here that I need to work on. And you go over here. Anybody else with me on that? Like it's constantly this, it's this constant pendulum of I've got to grow closer to God and, and, and learn and, and, and improve on myself. Um, and God's grace is bigger than your mistakes. You don't have to get it perfect. In fact, he knows that we won't. But there is a part that we play. The book of James says that our, our faith without our works is dead. You have, to, you have to work out your faith, right? And it's like the process of working in your yard, and if you show up every week and you do the work and you, you know, add the fertilizer or trim the stuff or pull the weeds, like, that stuff will eventually come to a place where it's growing good fruit. And it's the same thing that happens in your life. But the beauty is that in our life, we don't have to do it alone. God comes down off the mountain to come cultivate our souls. In fact, this is even cooler, he doesn't even have to come down off the mountain. He's so magnanimous that he can be on the mountain and down here with us at the same time. As Jesus made his presence known to us and as he went back to be with the Father, he said, like, I'm gonna leave my spirit behind with you. We call that the Holy Spirit. Christians call it the Holy Spirit. And what that means is just God's, God's really active presence in our lives. Like when you feel guilt or pain from brokenness in your life, when you feel the desire to do better, when you feel the empathy to love someone else, yes, some of that is your own personality and you, but that is God's spirit coming alongside you saying, do better, be righteous, be just, serve others, live for me. And the cultivation process happens, blood, sweat, and tears and all. 
digging up the bushes, pulling out the vines, doing the work. And as we zoom out, we see that God has been faithful in the whole process. Jesus tells us himself he will never leave us or forsake us. In fact, when we're in some of the hardest times in our life, you know what that often is? Pruning, pulling, weeding. And we look at the hard moments of our life and we're like, why is this happening? And I don't have answers for that. I've asked the same questions. But what I do know from my own experience and those older and wiser than me is that like after the pruning and the cutting and the digging and the pulling, oh, the fruit that you can bear is so much better. And you become this vineyard. Micah chapter 7, we'll get back there finally. Chapter 18, Micah describes God like this. The same God that he saw coming down mountain to mountains and throwing the stones of Samaria down into the valley, like that same parent coming down to deal with things. This is the same person that, got, that Micah describes in verse 18, chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons sin, who forgives transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever. I need you to listen, guys. Listen to this verse. God does not stay angry forever. He delights to show mercy. That's what he wants to do. Verse 19, he says, you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. That's the pruning, that's the pulling, that's the blood, sweat, and tears. But verse 20, you will be faithful to Jacob. You will show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. And by the way, Jesus teaches that anyone who follows him, that anyone who falls into that becomes a child of Abraham. This is a promise for you, just as it was for them. God loves you, okay? God loves you, but here's this week's challenge. That's the book of Micah, by the way. We made it. Um, here's this week's challenge. Let him work. Like, let him get in there and get dirty and pull junk up. And he works through each other. Like, when you're in accountability with someone else, when you're in community with someone, and they, and they can come alongside you, we do not need to be like the false prophets who say, it's fine. God has infinite patience. Just do whatever you want to do. That's what our culture teaches us. Don't tell me what's wrong. No, God tells us what's wrong. Not because he's just this bitter old man who don't want us to have any fun, but because he loves us, he created us, he knows how we should function. Instead, he comes in and he wants to weed our life. And here's the beautiful thing that happens. So that's the challenge. Let God work. <laughs> Let God work. But here's the, here's the beautiful thing. As that happens in your life, you become a fertile ground to grow the fruit in keeping with the kingdom of God. And the things that you do are fruit to the rest of the world. So that as the rest of the world wanders through the vineyard in the time of gleaning, they're not alone. You were right there with them a plump, juicy grape you are. <laughs> you like that image? And you can show them the nourishment that comes from God because of the nourishment he put in you. You are not, you are not God. <laughs> you are not the farmer, the harvester, or whatever in this scenario. But you can help sustain them to the place where they can find the God who came down from the mountain to show us the way to his love. That's the book of Micah. And that's the first half of the Minor Prophets. Let's pray today.